Um, so hi, my name's Rod. Welcome again. Um, we're in the early stages of a new series, which is exciting, and this series is called The Bibles, with an S, um, because we're looking at, I guess, the many different ways in which the Bible is read. Um, hmm. That's right, I was going to... We might come back to that prayer. I think if you just go to... Isn't there... Where's the view? Oh, there we go. So just... Don't worry about that. We'll just go through. Go through to where it says... Bibles. There we go. Who needs liturgical prayer? We'll do that next week. Um, So we're doing a series called The Bibles. And... We began, as we usually do, with... um, research. So we talked to you guys about um, your current relationship with the Bible, your feelings about the Bible. And um, I guess what came out of that research was that for most of us, our relationship with uh, the Bible is characterized by some kind of fear and anxiety. Um, So what we're moving on to now in this second part of the series is um, trying to s- starting to hopefully challenge some of the assumptions that are creating this fear for us, some of the assumptions that are creating this sense of anxiety, and hopefully finding a less fearful, less anxious relationship with the Bible. Um, to two weeks ago. Um, this is, this is just to punish people for not volunteering to work with kids. Though we do have lots of, lots of volunteers now, so thanks for all of those that volunteered over the last couple of weeks. But, um, yeah. Um, two weeks ago, um, Shane talked about the, uh, the egg beater problem. For those that were here, you might remember the egg beater. There it is. Um, he told us a story of imagining a family where um, no one knows what an egg beater is and it arrives as a gift from overseas um, and the grandfather, the authority in the family, um, has this recollection that he thinks it was used in the First World War by soldiers to trim their bikini line. And so Shane talked about how long it might be that you would use it for that purpose before you... <laughs> before you were so traumatised that you gave it away. And how tragic it is that something which is so useful for beating eggs um, would become a source of traumatic memory for us. Um, so we're using that image. <laughs> we, we won't raise it too often, don't worry. But we're, <laughs> we're using that image to get us to think about... Um, how it was that we came to understand the Bible as we currently do? Who was it that told us what it's for? Um, and did those people really understand us or honour us? Um, and are there other ways that we might use the Bible that are less traumatising and that can create yummy omelettes? And then last week, our, our lovely friend from New Zealand, Michael Frost, or Frosty, talked... Uh, again, about fear and anxiety, just talked about the fact that um, fear and anxiety dominate our relationship with the Bible and dominate our relationship with the sacred 
generally and suggested that in Jesus we see um, someone trying to break the connection between the sacred, between the law, between the Torah and fear, and between the sacred, between the law, between the Torah and violence. By calling God daddy, by arguing for mercy and not judgment, for inclusion, not exclusion, and for forgiveness rather than vengeance. Um, He also suggested that what Jesus does in subverting this relationship between the sacred and fear is something that happens not just with Jesus and not just in the New Testament, but throughout the Bible. It's a book that subverts itself. Um, Again, another reason for us to talk about the Bibles rather than the Bible. Um, That within the Bible there are so many passages that connect the sacred to fear and connect the sacred to violence, but there are as many that subvert that connection and suggest something different. And he introduced us to the idea of movement, that uh, the, the Bible itself is a process of movement, a moving conversation about who God is and how to relate to God. And it's a conversation that involves a lot of disagreement and a lot of debate within the Bible itself. And lastly, he suggested that 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 movement is something which is supposed to continue beyond the Bible, continue um, in our community today, a a debate and a conversation about um, who God is and um, how to respond to God, how to relate to God. So this week we're going to um, continue to talk about um, different obstacles that that people raised in that research phase of our series, um, obstacles to having a a life-giving relationship with the Bible. Um, But I don't want to, um, for reasons that will become clear, I don't want to just talk at you for 20 minutes this morning. I want to start with an exercise that will hopefully draw out of all of us the, um, some answers and some helpful insights as to um, some of the obstacles that we're going to look at this morning. Um, so to begin with, I need a volunteer to read a passage of the Bible for us. I'll give you some, while you're thinking, I'll tell you some of the more difficult words, so that will help you to decide. Nazareth, not too bad. Capernaum. Zarephath. Um, I think they're the worst ones in there. Side Naaman, the the Syrian. That's pretty easy. Any volunteers? Oh, thanks, B. Yeah, that's right. I need the exercise. So just before V reads this. Um, as, as you, we read this passage, what I want you to think about, for those of you who are familiar with this passage, um, I want you to think back to the first way that this passage was ever explained to you, or maybe the first time you encountered it, um, the first time you heard it spoken about in a church community, and what, what were you told was the message of this passage. Yeah, so as you go through. I want you to try to think back. 
Luke 4:16 to 30. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as it was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you, heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many windows, uh, widows in Israel at the time of Elijah. When the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them, um, except to a widow at a place in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet of Elisha. Elisha. However, none of them were cleansed except Naaman in Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them, the midst of them and went on his way. Thanks, V. I wonder what kind of car they drove him in. So any, can anyone recall you know, the first time they encountered this passage or um, the first time they heard it spoken about and what, what were they told was the kind of bottom line about this passage? What is, what is it about? I think we rarely got through to the second half of it. It was pretty much just that the quote and I guess the emphasis was just this was the moment when Jesus was kind of standing up and claiming his identity. It's interesting to think too what, um, what identity we were told he was claiming. Um, I got quoted this passage when I was going to become a chiropractor in Ballarat, where I grew up. And um, the, yeah, my boss said it might be hard being a chiropractor in a place where lots of people know you as a child because they know you as a child and not as a chiropractor. So it's this weird, yeah, identity thing. Thanks, V. 
So what were you told that Jesus was claiming to be in this passage, if, if anything? Uh, the Son of God or the Messiah. Um, I think I remember that it was one of, like, there's kind of three moments where, like, things happen that kind of announce Jesus as the Messiah, and this is one of them. The other one is the baptism. I can't remember what the third one is. It's been a while. Me neither. Any other thoughts on this passage? Any recollections, Jeremy? I think I've heard this a lot, actually, but it seems to be the, one of the first times that I've seen it in a place like this in totality, because it's been cut off, uh, anointed me to bring good news, stop there. The year of the Lord's favor, stop there. Um, but the second half shed some interesting light on it, and I really like it. I mean, certainly for me, um, growing up with this passage, um, yeah, there was very much what I would describe as a, as a flat reading of this passage. Um, there's really kind of, there's one thing that we are to get out of this passage, and that is that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, and very quickly, you jump from that to the cross, um, so, and then Jesus died, and that, that's the mechanism by which we then get to heaven. Um, so there's this, this very quick, flat line from Jesus announces his identity, um, and that identity is um, someone that died so that we could go to heaven. Um, so go to the next slide. Um, so this piece of paper is to represent flatness, <laughs> a, flat, a flat reading. Um, and the problem with the flat reading, the fact that, well, it's just Jesus saying he's going to die and save us all, um, is that so much is lost, so much of the texture of it and so much of the detail of it is lost. Um, so what we're going to do as uh, the next phase of our exercise is I'm going to read some context about um, the Jewish synagogue in the first century or in the time of Jesus. And then we're going to read it again and we're going to see what extra light that throws on this, what other um, depth we can draw out of this passage. So as I read this, and then as we read the passage again, try to hold on to your initial kind of experience of the passage, and then we're going to contrast it with your experience when we read it again after I read this. Um, so this is from a, a book that you may or may not have heard about. It's called What is the Bible? by the very excitable Rob Bell. Um, I don't know if you know anything about him, but he's a kind of evangelical heretic um, in the States who now lives in California, which is where all the heretics end up. And um, 
he's written this, to my mind, quite dazzling book um, on, on the Bible. I just found it in the local library system. Who knew? And uh, I read it this week, and it was, it's, quite, it's quite stunning, um, particularly in terms of the kinds of questions that he asks. Uh, his big thing is that the huge problem with the way that we read the Bible is that we're always asking the wrong questions, um, and that, that shapes the whole book. But I'm just going to read a few pages from uh, a chapter on um, where he talks about how Jesus read the Bible. In Jesus' day, no one had a Bible. This was roughly 1,500 years before the invention of the printing press and people didn't own books, let alone Bibles, because books didn't really exist. What people read, and only certain people, were scrolls, and scrolls were rare. Um, The kids have prepared some scrolls here. They're made from paddle pop sticks and pieces of A4. I'm not sure that that's exactly how they were made 1,500 years ago, but let's, let's just go with it. In a village like the one Jesus would have lived in, there would probably have been just a few sacred scrolls. We have four. Um, and those scrolls would have been kept in the local synagogue in a cabinet called an ark. There were scrolls of the prophets' writing, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc., the wisdom writings like the book of Job, the history books, the life of King David, etc., and then there would have been the Torah scroll. Torah is the name for the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Torah means way or teaching or law or instruction, and everything in Jesus' first century Jewish world centered around the Torah. On the Sabbath day, you'd go to the synagogue in your village and the Hazan, the worship leader, would take the Torah scroll out of the ark and parade it through the congregation, inviting everyone to dance in honour of the Torah. Um, So we're going to have 10 seconds of Torah dancing. You don't have to dance, but you do have to clap rhythmically while I dance with the Torah. Are you ready? Okay, just, just give me... Oh, oh, wait, wait. Can you just stop it for a second? This is Hava Nagila. I really apologise. It's not really authentic synagogue music, but uh, we're going to have 10 seconds. I'm going to jump up and down with the Torah in my arms and you all have to clap. So it's just a tiny bit less humiliating for me. Hi, I'm Tilly. I love church so much because it brings me to God. Oh, that's beautiful. Um, Hi, I'm Kitty. 
have a nice day. And there's a picture of church. That looks a bit more like a synagogue, interestingly. This is from Toby. Always continue to stay strong and committed as things start to go your way. Ah. And this is from Joel. Be strong, stay strong, and believe in God. Love, Joel. Joel, of course, is a book of the Bible, so it's good to finish, good to finish with that one, which is more authentic. <laughs> the book of Kitty, that would be a good one. <laughs> the prophet Kitty. She would be a very fierce prophet. I don't know if you know Kitty, but she would have been a, yeah, a scary prophet. So the scroll would be opened and someone would read that day's Torah portion, as I did, um, which was mapped out years in advance, along with readings from the prophets. And then there would have been commentary and discussion about what it means and how you live it. So obviously, on that day, the prophet was Isaiah. Interestingly, I think at that time, a huge number of the readings from the prophets were from Isaiah uh, because it was such a, a book of hope. Everyone joined in. It was assumed you had an opinion and it was assumed that you had questions. Of course you had questions. Questions were a sign of life, a sign this mattered to you, a sign you were engaged with the text. Think of the images that come to mind when you hear the word Bible. For many, their first thought is of someone with their head down, alone, reading a bound book with pages, a book they probably own their own copy of. Or maybe the picture that comes to mind is of someone behind a podium in a church service or on cable TV reading from the Bible and then telling you what it says or what you're supposed to do. Contrast this with Jesus, the Bible in Jesus' world, which was a scroll that you saw and heard someone read in the centre of the room, in the midst of the community. And then you all discussed it. You surrounded the words, you encircled them literally, physically, and then you engaged with them together. The other thing that really struck me um, is, of course, that it was in a completely different language, Um, that they were reading Torah in Hebrew, they were discussing it in Aramaic. Um, Every service would start with the Shema, the Shema Israel, Adonai Aleichenu, Adonai Echad. They would start with, um, hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Um, even just hearing words in another language in our community, it's just, it's another dimension that, we, that is so often lost to us that it may come as a shock, but Jesus never spoke a single word of English. This was a communal experience. Picture all that energy swirling around the room. Picture all those opinions. Picture really wise people saying interesting and profound things. Picture that crazy uncle rambling on and on and making no sense. And then you'd come back the next week and you'd do it all over again. The Torah started the discussion. For many in our world, the Bible ends the discussion. Someone stands up and reads from the Bible and then tells the gathered masses what it means and what is right and how it should be interpreted and then the service is over and everybody leaves. But in the first century world of Jesus, the Torah and the prophets and the wisdom writings were the start of the discussion. You read it together and then you interpreted it. You engaged with it. You turned turned the gem. 
This image of the gem he is a reference to um, earlier in uh, the book where it talks about the Bible as being a gem and every time you turn it, you get a new facet. I found a nice, that's a nice one, isn't it? It's not, it's not really, it's kind of rough. I like that gem, a sapphire. Um, he, he references a book by Rabbi Lawrence Kushner um, where he interprets the same verse from Genesis, I think it's Genesis 28, 16, where Jacob wrestles with God and at the end of wrestling with God says, you were here and I did not realize it. And in this book, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner then interprets that single verse about seven or eight different ways. Um, And this is the image of Torah that the people of Jesus' time had, that there were a thousand facets to every passage and that the job of their conversation, the job of their discussion was to find the facet that spoke to them, that, that lit up their world at that moment. This wasn't just an intellectual exercise. This was about life. How do you live? What do you do? How do you act? How do you treat people? How do you conduct yourself? Think whatever you want. Let your mind wander. But how you act, that's what matters. I'm going to get another volunteer um, to read the passage for us again. And this time I want you, instead of engaging it as we so often do in a flat way of going, what's, what's the one message that I'm meant to take from this passage? I want us to try to enter into a three-dimensional world of first century synagogue, these people gathered around Torah, Jesus, who's from this town, sitting in the middle of his friends and family. This is a tiny village. Everyone knows him. Everyone's related to him. And then he says this insane thing. What's incredible is that they don't, when he says the scripture's fulfilled today in front of you, they go, oh, they're charmed by his gracious words. It's not that that they react to. Anyway, I'm not gonna spoil your experience by commenting already. I'm just gonna get someone to read it out again and ask us to enter into this three-dimensional world and think what else it tells us, what other facets of the gem. Thanks, Dan. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been... Oh, hang on. Just reading again, aren't we? (laughs) Sorry. I was expecting a different passage. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me, to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gathered back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do you hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum? And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Thanks, Dan. So what else do we get from this passage from entering into it imaginatively, from imagining the context, what else comes out of it aside from Jesus announcing himself as the Messiah? While you're thinking, one, one thing that, that occurred to me as I read this book and as I looked at this passage was that um, this community resembles uh, a first century synagogue in some ways that are profoundly different from the kind of church that I grew up in. What we see pictured here of um, people gathered around Torah, someone speaking and then being responded to, uh, essentially a debate, an argument ensues which gets violent. Um, we, normally steer, <laughs> we normally steer away from the violence but that idea of someone speaking and being responded to, that the idea that what characterizes our engagement with the Bible is conversation um, and people bringing different perspectives. This is much more of Jesus' world than the kind of thing that I grew up with. I, I remember um, one of the the pastors at the church that I went to would often say when he was um, speaking about the Bible that he, um, that a lot of people when they spoke about the Bible, they got in the way. They got in the way. Their interpretation was, you know, distorting the Bible. But that what we did in our community, what he did when he spoke about the Bible was get out of the way so that the Bible could speak for itself, which sounds great. Um, but essentially what you're saying is everyone else interprets the Bible, but I don't. Um, so what I'm telling you is just what the Bible says. And if you disagree with it, then you're wrong because that's what the Bible says. <coughs> and the, yeah, the idea of yeah, just there being one and only one thing that each passage of the Bible says and that that 
is part of the one and only one thing that the entire Bible says. Uh, and that if you disagree with it, then you can take your questions and go. Is very alien to what we see in this passage. It's very alien to what we see in the synagogue of Jesus' time and the way that they engaged with Torah. Was there anything else that people that struck people on that second reading? So first of all, I just want to know, did Jesus have to jump up and down before he read it? Was that, was that what happened? Likely? Okay. Uh, that's exciting. Um, yeah, so I think kind of like other people have said, they have heard that middle chunk and then kind of stopped. And then I've also been kind of taught like the things in the Bible are true for now and those promises for them are promises for you. And so the idea of this like, yeah, you have the Lord's favor is on you. But then after reading it this time again... I was like, wait a minute, Jesus was saying, yeah, he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, but then in the passage it's like, no, but there were widows at that time when this was being said. So what did that actually mean for that time? And then what does that mean for Jesus at that time? Because then Jesus really did fulfill those things, but they weren't fulfilled at that point. So it was it was an interesting um, new take on it because... Yeah, it's it's been so out of context, I guess, most of my life. So, yeah. Thanks, Taylor. I think when I've read it before, I've always thought that they were mad at Jesus because he was saying he was the Messiah. Um, whereas looking at it now, you kind of see that they were, they were almost a bit in awe of him and, um, you know, they've heard these things that he's done in other towns and to me it sounds like they're kind of waiting for him to do some kind of miracle or sign and then he's pretty much saying, like they they thinking the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to do those things for them and then he's saying... No, God's actually reaching out to the Gentiles and um, the people that you consider unclean is where is actually where I'm going and that's who I'm wanting to help and I feel like that's when they were filled with rage. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's such a striking thing that, that so many people when they read the obvious meaning of this passage completely misread it because it's not him claiming to be the Messiah or claiming that that God's favor is arriving that upsets them um, it's almost like he can see their minds ticking over and going wow this could be great for our town if we have this awesome prophet doing all this healing think about the business that's going to come through my shops and all of so it's thinking about this is God looking after us this is think of all the things that we can get out of it and Jesus instantly goes no 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 think about what happened with the prophets in the past the way that Elijah went to stay with and blessed a widow that was part of your the enemies in Sidon and look at the fact that Elisha healed the general of the conquering army of Israel um that's that's what I'm about not about feathering your nest not about 
bringing honor to this town. Um, so it's almost like Jesus can see straight into their hearts. Oh, you've completely misunderstood <laughs> this. So it gets a bit cross. I think the background context the book gives about the setup of the synagogue is also really interesting in the sense that I guess my view of it had been that it's this kind of carefully curated big reveal and he's been heading towards this moment where he's like, surprise, I'm the Messiah. But actually, A, it was his custom to go to the synagogue, so he may have stood up and read on plentiful other occasions which didn't culminate in this, and then he didn't even choose this passage. Like, if it's all planned in advance, um, so it feels much less... uh, yeah, it's it kind of it fits more into just this kind of ongoing relationship he had with the people rather than this um, one perfect moment that he like had he been waiting for this moment to finally reveal it and and he'd been checking the calendars to find out when finally this verse was going to come up. It's quite a different picture of the whole process. Any other thoughts? Obviously, at the end, but the people of the town seem a little bit villainous, but uh, seeing it from their point of view, it, uh, I don't know, like, he, he shows up and he's like, I'm anointed to bring good news, and then they're like, yeah, great, do it, and he's like, psych, not to you guys, <laughs> bit of a down low, too slow kind of a thing, I feel. Just made me think about the whole context of Nazareth, too, which is held in disdain by other communities, I think it was Philip who was called out, like, what good can come from Nazareth? So for the downtrodden and the sort of dis- the maligned people of Nazareth, it's like, yeah, it's a czar term, but God always, in his upside-down way, sort of points out that there's other people and, yeah, extending our gaze, I think. But I, th- I think your point is so great to go, um, yeah, to give ourselves permission to see Jesus's mean or like as being a bit oh it's kind of set them up like they're gone oh you know god's favor is going to pour out great we're going to be blessed it's like yeah but not you i mean it's just it just seems really mean yeah um i'm i don't know maybe i'm reading too much into this i'm looking at the end and i don't know what throwing off the cliff means like were they planning on ending his life but it seemed pretty severe but then it just says he passed through them and went on his way. Like, how do you even do that? And so if they doubted before, <laughs> a whole crowd of people, he's there and then he's not there, what does that mean even? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh hi. Yeah, yeah. hi. Great. Hi. Yep. Um, I just think it's really interesting that, because um, he, like, talking about that setting it up thing and, you know, he obviously didn't, I think they set it up because he's read the scripture and then, he, he was like, okay, cool, I'm done. He went to give it back. And everyone just, like it says, they just stopped and waited for him. It was like he didn't even set it up. It's like he finished what he was saying and then everyone's like, and now what? Because they would have been hearing all these stories about him and they're just like, they set up that expectation. And then he was just like, yeah, nah, I'm, I don't know what you're thinking this is. And then, yeah, that's... Absolutely. But yeah, the, the fascinating dynamics, that yeah. the idea of going to a church where it's just you go to the church and everyone sits and there's a monologue which tells you this one thing that you take away versus this incredible drama um, of conflicting desires or agendas um, and then this kind of conversation ensues where, oh, here's this passage. Jesus is thinking, what, yeah, like it just happens to be the one for the day. What am I going to say about this? I mean, yeah, so such a 
so much more dramatic than what we do. When I've read this before, I've always been disappointed at how it ends with Jesus saying what he's saying. Then why don't you just shut up then? You know, don't say anything else. And when, now you're just saying, you know, yeah, it's all right to see him as being a bit mean. I think, yeah, I always felt a bit disappointed in him. So now I want to know your answer. So what do you do with this bit mean Jesus? Well, yeah, well, it's a good question. Do we need, do we need to do anything at all with Jesus being mean? Is, is, Jesus, is it okay for Jesus to be snarky? I think Jesus is snarky on a lot of occasions. And you can probably, I mean, you can, you can either get him out of it or you can just leave him in it. And does it really matter? Like you can say, well, he saw their hearts and they were going to exploit him and turn him into some kind of prophet you know, profit for hire kind of thing. And you go, oh, he saw their hearts and so he, he came back really strongly in response to that. Um, or you can just go, yeah, this seems a bit mean. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Hemi wants to change his nappy, but before we do, um, the interesting with that is that Jesus is Jewish here, not English. And so... Niceness and politeness aren't necessarily the highest prized cultural values in first century Palestine for Jews. And so if we try and turn him into an Englishman and put him through that lens, then maybe he's going to be quite different than what we expect. And maybe he was mean in, in his culture. Well, not mean, but maybe he was, you know, at times impolite. And in his culture, that's actually not the most cardinal sin. Yeah. He didn't drink tea either. <laughs> um, I was think I've always read that line is not this Joseph's son as kind of like an incredulous like oh how could the son of a carpenter be this wise prophet. Um, but actually, I can see now in this context what they're actually saying is that kind of that that sort of that merchandising eye, like, oh, this is Joseph's son. We can we can have a piece of this because Joseph is one of ours. Um, so we can, you know, like Nazareth, Jesus was born here. Like, you can see that that those wheels turning in their heads, and uh, and Jesus' reaction as this kind of rejection of that ownership, like, you don't own me. Um, uh, and the other thing I sort of got a bit stuck on, which isn't actually that related to this conversation, is <laughs> the fact that probably there wouldn't have been any women in the room um, or, or any widows or lepers. Like, f correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that kind of inner synagogue thing where this happened would have been all men and only certain men um, and then there was like that outer bit of the temple where like the women and widows and stuff could go but it was still a very um, like it's it's a I, I love the idea of this kind of inclusive debate and um, encouragement of interpretation and stuff like that but also it was still a world where there are incredibly strict rules and laws of society and it was, there was a really specific person contributing to this debate. Yeah, I think, I mean, two, two things with that is, yeah, there's no, we're not told what the tone of anything is in these stories. So when it says, 
um, is not this Joseph's son? Is it, in, yeah, is it incredulous? Is it mocking? Or is it um, potentially exploitative? I mean, we're not, we're not told. That's, and that's the space which is there for us to enter in. Um, that's the Jewish tradition of Midrash, which is stories that fill in gaps in the narrative, come out of exactly this space that's in the text. We don't know the tone with which they ask this question. It's not, it's not clear. And I guess the other thing with what Kat's saying about this being an all-male all environment is that um, there is... Um, Subversion and liberation strands, but also incredibly reactionary strands always there in the Bible. There's always kind of patriarchy and racism and all of these kinds of things. Um, while at the same time, there are strands of liberation. Um, one thing that we'll <clears throat> probably come to later in the series, because I'm a bit obsessed with it at the moment, is uh, womanist theology, which is uh, African-American female uh, feminist um, theology. And um, some of the, you know, for a straight white man, uh, some of the, the reactions and some of the things that they see in texts that are completely invisible to me are quite extraordinary. I just read recently a, um, a womanist theologian talking about the parable of the ten virgins. So I don't know if you remember the story. But uh, so it's these ten virgins waiting for a bridegroom to arrive and he's very late um, they fall asleep. Five of them brought some oil in reserve. Five of them didn't. Uh, and then suddenly it's announced that the bridegroom's arriving and the, um, the virgins without oil, <laughs> great band, um, the, <laughs> the virgins without oil ask the other virgins, oh, can you lend us some? And they say, no go and get your own. And so they head off to try to quickly find some oil and then the bridegroom arrives and enters into the feast or whatever uh, with the five prepared virgins and the five that didn't bring reserve oil, they are locked outside and they don't get to be part of the, of the fun. And um, as, a, as a descendant of slaves, you read this story and you go... Oh, that's just, that's exactly how the master always treated slaves. You had to be ready at any hour, any hour of the, uh, any tick of the clock, any hour of the day and night, you had to be ready. And um, things were set up that you would not be generous with each other because the consequences of doing the wrong thing were so severe that you were trained to not, don't share your oil with the other slave because if you do, then you might get in trouble. So you kind of sacrifice each other. The, the system of violence means that you sacrifice each other um, just to save your skin because the consequences of not doing exactly the right thing at exactly the right time are so severe. And I'm, I've lived with that parable my entire life and I've never seen any of those dynamics at all. Um, but I think that's what we're called to. That's what we're called to with this, with this book, with these books, with these Bibles. We're called to a conversation where we're constantly looking for the wisdom of the other, the wisdom of other people, the insights, the angles that other people bring that we are blind to uh, because that's part of the evolving conversation. That's part of the movement 
that is meant to characterize our engagement with this text. It's not meant to be just this one thing. Almost done, really. Was there anything else that anyone, any other insights that people... I've got one or two short things that I'm going to say, but any other insights before we finish? Any other thoughts, observations? No. The last thing I want to say is just, um, just a quick comment on the way that Jesus uses um, the Bible here. So this quote from Isaiah, I don't, it's interesting to know whether this is the sum total of what was down to be read that day or not, or whether Jesus cuts it short, because the very next line in Isaiah is, um, and the day of the Lord's vengeance. So, it's fascinating to, to know whether, yeah, Jesus is editing the Bible on the fly here, um, whether that reference to vengeance um, was just cut out from the day's reading or whether it was there and Jesus cut it out himself. But either way, the way that I was brought up to read the Bible um, is not the way that Jesus reads the Bible at all. Jesus edits on the fly. Jesus very, very selectively quotes from the Old Testament. All the, the violent and vengeful parts of the Old Testament, Jesus pretty much completely ignores. And yet, um, when there, or within, you know, prophets like Isaiah, when there are, is a mix of violent and non-violent images, it's always the non-violent ones that Jesus chooses. He also plays incredibly fast and loose with the original context of the passages that he quotes. Um, even the reference to the, um, the widow in Sidon and the reference to Naaman, this is not, <laughs> this is not a perfect summary of Elijah and Elisha's ministry. They did all sorts of amazing things for Israel. Um, but this is exactly what rabbis of that time would do. They would selectively and skillfully quote, misquote, uh, pull out of context, whatever it was that enabled them to win the debate that they're having. And there's amazing passages in the New Testament where <clears throat> um, a teacher of the law challenges Jesus and Jesus comes back with some quote from Torah completely out of context. And the teacher of the law is just so impressed by Jesus being so skilled in manage, managing to rip a, a quote out of context and just use it to, uh, to support his argument. It's not the way that we were, so many of us were brought up to read the Bible. Um, the rigidity and the flatness and the lack of play and the lack of conversation. It's just not what Jesus does. Um, and I don't think it's what we're supposed to do either. Because ultimately, and with this we're going to move to, to communion. Um, ultimately, if you read the Bible in this kind of flat, there's only one voice in it kind of way, then that's how we engage with each other. We don't engage each other in conversation 
We don't expect to learn from other people when we talk about the Bible. If we read it in this flat way, we have this idea that there's only one message, there's only one way of reading everything, and our job is just to impose that on other people, to tell them to not invite conversation at all, to see Jesus as a mechanism um, that we have to employ to do to others um, rather than Jesus being a person to be encountered. Um, and as we, as we look at communion, I think communion exemplifies this perfectly, that for, for so much of the church over history, um, this bread and this wine has, has been turned into a mechanism. It's been turned into um, something that gives us God in some way. Uh, and so if you, if you show up and you take the bread and you take the wine, then it has these particular effects um, and that's it. That's the sum total of, of its meaning and its significance and its resonance. Uh, whereas if instead of seeing it as a mechanism, you see it as a meal, a meal where people meet, where people converse. And you see it as an opportunity to remember Jesus. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Not remember Jesus as this mechanism that allows you to get into heaven, but Jesus as a person to be encountered, a person to enter into conversation with. So as we come forward this morning and take the little bit of cracker and the little bit of juice, um, let's not think of this as some kind of magical mechanism of grace, but let's think of it as um, a symbolic meal. Um, less symbolic is the kids' morning tea over there. And think of it as a place to gather and to encounter each other and to start a conversation. So come forward, use the, the knuckle of love to crack the crackers and take a little bit and take a little cup of juice. And when we've all got our cracker and juice, I'll pray. Obviously, as always, feel free not to come forward and do this if you're not comfortable. Before I pray, I just want to say to anyone that's feeling anxious this morning <laughs> about, well, if there's not just one clear message, then how do we know what's true? Um, I just want to remind you of what Shane shared with us a couple of weeks ago, um, that Jesus is constantly saying to us that if you're weary and burdened, that he will give us rest and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. A lot of our anxiety comes from the fact that we feel like we need to get it right because if we don't get it right, the consequences are terrible for us. And I think Jesus says to us, it's just not the case. The stakes aren't that high. Your eternal destiny is not based on how you interpret the Bible.
So let's pray. Loving God, I thank you for this place where we can come and talk about you and hear each other. I thank you that you don't call us to be individuals extracting the clear meaning of this text that you have dropped down to us from heaven, but that you call us to meet together and to be part of a millennia-old communal conversation about you and about how to live and how to love and help us to continue to do that conversation together. We thank you for Jesus, for the way he embodied that, literally embodied that for us. Thank you that he calls us to be his body. Help us to love and to honour each other as he loved and honoured us. In his name, amen.